Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to have our Bible reading now. We are on a journey through the book of Deuteronomy. We're up to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8 and a few chapters around that. This morning, if you've got your Bibles there, we'll read the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8 or it'll be on the screen. This is Moses talking to Israel, God's people. Be careful to follow, everything command, uh, to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man, as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing, bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, but you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the God for the good land He has given you. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Ryan. It's great to be up here, and particularly opening these chapters of Deuteronomy. There's a lot of chapters here that we're looking at, so let's get into it. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read. Um, yeah, have a look at these these chapters. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would. Lord, be with us now as we hear you, as we hear you speak to us through your word. Thank you, Father, that from the beginning you are a God who speaks and who comes near and shows us who you are. You're a God who humbles himself um, to relate with us. And so, Father, we pray that we would feel the love uh, from you this morning when we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in 1938 uh, to 1942, it's a couple of years there, 268 first-year uh, students from Harvard University in America were chosen to be a part of uh, this study, what would become, and still is, the longest study in human development. And one of the questions that they were particularly interested in and that they've been searching and researching on is, well, what makes life rewarding? What makes life go well or successful? And so over these years, over 80 years, this is what they've been looking into. 
And I suppose in a sense, or who wouldn't want to know the, the secret or what is uh, what contributes most or what's most important when it comes to having a rewarding life or a successful life or life going well for you, as Moses says in Deuteronomy, or at least that's what God wants for his people, that life would go well for them, would be rewarding for them, successful for them in the land. And one of the directors of this study, um, Dr. Valiant, says that over the, the, the years that they've been studying, the one thing that has stood out above everything else, what matters most, he said, what really matters most are our relationships with other people and then with us. That's what the longest study in human development going over 80 years tells us. Warmth, love, intimacy, loving relationship. That's what Dr. Valian is saying is the most significant contributor to life going well, to have a rewarding life. So for us, though, as, you know, as Southside, as God's people here, as we kind of uh, working through Deuteronomy, the big question on the minds for God's people and for us today is what does God say about that? Is it as simple as that? Is life going well for us and God simply about loving relationships or is it something different? In chapter 7 to 11, Moses reminds God's people, reminds Israel of the most important contributor to their life going well in the land. And so we're going to look at three things that Moses kind of leads God's people through. And really, it's kind of captured by this deeper journey, this pursuit of life that we're talking about over the series of Deuteronomy is this deeper journey. And we're going to start by looking at the deeper battle, uh, the deeper power, and then the deeper journey. So the first thing that we, exp- um, we explore with Moses in chapter 7 to 8 is this deeper battle that's going on. Because here's Israel, as chapter, um, the first verse of chapter 7 says, they're preparing to go into the land. Moses is getting them ready to go into the land. And it would appear on first reading that Moses is saying that the threat, the, the biggest threat to Israel's life going well in the land are the nations in the land, the people occupying the land. These seven nations, great nations, Moses lists here. And so the greatest threat to Israel's relationship with God and their time in the land is threatened by the people in the land. Well, then what really matters most then, what's going to contribute most to Israel's relationship with God and their time in the land going well is really destroying them totally. Wiping them out. But while these verses do say that you know, Canaan, as it is known and well known for being quite a, a wicked group of nations, you know, that needs to come to an end. And we're going to speak more about that next week. But at this point, it's not, what actually, it's not Moses' focus. It's not Moses' point. Because if we keep reading, it'd be a mistake to envision that God has in mind killing kind of every single living, breathing person. Because the following verses describe a very different kind of relational dynamic in the land. The verses kind of point out and warn them to make no treaty with them. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give uh, your daughters to their sons 
and your sons to their daughters. And if we keep reading into verse 6, God reveals, though, the deeper concern that he has for his people is that they'd be wholeheartedly committed to their relational promise with him, their covenant with him. And Ben told us a lot about that last week. That's God's deep concern. He says that I want my people to know in an ever-deepening way that I have chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be my people, to be my treasured possession. That's what God wants. And the deepest threat isn't really going to be fought on the turf of Canaan itself. The deeper battle is going to be fought on the turf of the people's hearts. Yes, there's an outward battle that needs to be fought. Yes, they need to be concerned with that. But what is of greater concern, at least in God's eyes, is the inner battle of their heart. Israel are to only let, they are to fight, to only let God shape their heart and no one else besides him. And the language Moses uses in uh, chapter chapter 7 points out, and, and kind of as God uses his language, he's pointing God's people beneath the surface of their lives. When he talks about Israel not being turned away from God, ensnared and afraid and, and coveting, and explicitly in um, verse 17, he says, you know, what their hearts are saying, because their hearts are thinking and saying that these nations, well, they're greater than us, they're stronger than us. And Moses speaks to their feelings. He says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be terrified of them. Because at least at this moment where Israel are at, about to enter the land that God is giving them, their view of themselves is quite low. You could say their, their hearts are suffering from a low self-esteem. After all, you know, they've been a people who have just recently come out of slavery for most of these gen- this generation, they have grown up enslaved. And so Israel, you know, being the least, being the smallest, you know, probably might not be a comment about their, their size because Moses tells us a couple of times in Deuteronomy that they're as numerous as the stars, that God has delivered on his promise and making them a great nation and that is what they are. But it's not what they see. Israel have a self-image problem. But as they continue in their relationship with God, as they enter the land and take the land that God's giving them, this won't always be the way that they feel and think about themselves as chapter 8 and 10 to 17 says, And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. Then your heart will be become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God, saying, My power... My strength has produced this for me. There will be a moment in Israel's future, near future, when they're in the land, enjoying the land, enjoying God's blessing, His love, when they will become great. They've made it in their own eyes and their hearts will become proud, proud of themselves. Look what we've done. And while these two heart attitudes are very different, behind them is is one battle, the same battle, the battle that is being fought on the turf of Israel's heart. It's the battle 
of learning to think, feel, speak and act like they're God. That their heart would reflect his heart towards them. And from here on, how Israel see themselves, how Israel think, feel, speak and act in the world with their rela- in relationship with their God will be the most significant contributor to how their relationship goes with God. Their heart is the thing that needs to change. And the one thing, the one strategy that Moses uses here to, to help God's people win the battle of the heart like Moses has done so many times already and he'll continue to do so many times throughout Deuteronomy, he reminds people in chapter 8, verse 2, of how Israel had been treated by their God, how God has deliberately chosen to relate to them. He says, remember how, Moses says, remember how the Lord your God led you. Remember how he related to you in the wilderness those 40 years. Remember how God related to you, Moses says, And Moses links that experience of being with God to this idea of being humbled, humbling. Twice Moses links their experience of God to being humbled. In chapter 8, verse 2 and 16, God wanted to humble them. But what does humble mean in Deuteronomy? What's what's Moses getting at here? Because humility is a very rich idea. It's something the Bible talks about a lot. So there's lots that we could say about it. But what is Deuteronomy saying about what humility means here? And here, humility literally means to have a change of heart. It's to be taught something at a heart level. To be humbled is to have a, a corrective experience, but not just kind of any corrective experience, an experience of correction of the heart level from being brought low, from being brought to the end of yourself for being brought to that moment where the way that you have lived, where the way that you have thought, felt, acted, spoken, isn't going to work anymore for you and something must change. And for Israel, they must change. And it is this humbling, corrective experience that is directly connected to Israel's experience of their personal God who is present with them. He has kept them secure He has protected them. He has seen and heard them. He has comforted them, supported them. He has treasured them. And these humbling moments, Moses says, these experiences are of a father loving them as his children. Know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God has disciplined you. And in Proverbs reminds us of this experience of what's going on here is that a father who loves his son or who loves his children will discipline them. Discipline is a bit of a dirty word. <laughs> it's got those negative vibes. It's, it's as if, you know, discipline's actually more about uh, punishment and threat. But what discipline is really about is teaching. At the heart of what it means to be disciplined is actually to be discipled to be disciple, to be in a deeply formative relationship with God as he teaches us and changes us. God wants to teach his people, his children, Israel, new heart lessons. And so while there is no doubt 
a battle to be fought on the turf of Canaan, the deeper battle to be fought is on the turf of God's people's heart. And so the, so the question is, what is it now about those humbling experiences with God that has the power to change? What is it about being humbled at that moment where you're at your lowest? What is it in that moment that actually does the changing? What is it in that moment that actually has power to do something in us? Let's pick up the second point that Moses makes in chapter 9 and 10, a deeper power. And again, at first reading chapters 9 and 10, it would seem that the, the moment of being humble, what's powerful there is the experience of guilt, feeling guilty. It's the thought of, we've really messed this up. We are so bad. And man, I feel guilty about that. It's as if that's what, what is Moses is trying to get to drive Israel to change. Because Moses is relentless here, brutally relentless, where he goes again and again and again, reminding God's people of the way they've actually related to him. And then Moses is saying, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of you. It's not because of your righteousness. It's not even because of your unrighteousness. It's not because of what you've done. It's not because of what you haven't done. No, this isn't about you. You haven't earned this. Moses is so relentless in pointing out that it, it, it bores on just so being so brutally honest in almost enforcing Israel to face the truth that God isn't treating you like this because of you. Moses reminds them in, in chapter... In verses 7 and 8, remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord in the wilderness from the day that you've left Egypt. You've gotten under God's skin. You've rebelled. You've aroused his anger enough that he would destroy you. And then Moses spends the next 33 verses, 33 verses, reminding Israel of the worst moment. The moment where you don't want to remember. You bury it so deep that you don't want to go back there again. He goes there. Moses retells, reaching back into the deep, the deepest, darkest memories of God's people, of their worst moment with God. He says, remember. In verse 19, Moses says, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God and you had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You turned quickly from the way the Lord your, the God, the way the Lord your God commanded you. The story of the golden calf in Israel's history is the worst moment. It really is. It's them at their worst. And Exodus chapter 32 really you know, captures that moment in writing for us that while Moses is with God, you know, Moses is there listening to God, writing down kind of God's loving intentions for his people, like kind of putting that relational contract, those relational promises in writing. It's in that moment, as that is happening, here are God's people creating an idol out of the gold they stole from Egypt, saying, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. 
But it's in this moment with Israel gripped by the power of guilt. Is it this moment that should drive change in them? Is this the thing that has the power to bring change in our heart? Because, yeah, this moment's sad. But more to the point, it actually points us to the depths of, of God's heart. It shows us his brokenness, his sadness, his anger. But what it also shows is the deeper feelings of mercy and love that God has towards his people. You could almost miss it passing over, but it says, and Moses reminds us in chapter 10, verse 10, that God was unwilling. God was not willing to destroy you. God was unwilling to give people what they deserved. He was willing, is God's divine will, to give people what they don't deserve. So yes, the golden calf story, a story of, yes, how sinful God's people are, but more importantly, primarily, it's a story of how forgiving and how loving God is to people at their worst. It was not his will to destroy you. God's deep love for his people is what defines how he relates to them and will define how he always relates to them. And so Moses digs deep. He goes deep into the failures and the brokenness and the dark memories of his people. Not because it's there that they would find the feelings of guiltiness that would somehow force them or move them to change, but no, it's there that they see that as the deeper he goes, the deeper God's love goes, the deeper God's grace goes, and it's there where the heart is humbled a heart that knows its very existence, that the fact that it's here, that the fact that Israel are there on the land again is because someone wants them to be, is because God wants them to be, because he cares for them, watching over them and is seeking their well-being. But with Israel there on the land, how is this going to be important for them as they go in? Why is Moses reminding them of these, this humbling moment important for Israel as they go into the land. Well, let's look at the next point Moses makes in chapter 10 and 11, uh, this, this deeper journey God has Israel on. And this deeper journey takes them again, like we've been saying, beneath the surface of their, li- their lives. In chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, Moses reminds Israel again that what this deeper journey looks like is not necessarily a deeper journey into the the physical place of Canaan, the land of Canaan, it's a deeper journey into their hearts. To fear, to walk, to love, to serve, to obey God from their heart. And this begins, Moses says, by letting the truth of verse 15 shape them like nothing else, that the Lord has set his affections on your ancestors and loved them. He chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, and it's still true today, as it is today. Letting their experience of God change them is what Moses means when he says or uses the strange metaphor of having your heart circumcised, of not being stiff-necked any longer. This is a call to decisive, deliberate change of heart, to change how Israel think, feel, speak and act in relationship with their God. This is what it will take. 
this is what's most important. This will be the most important contributor for life in the land going well for Israel, is to let the experience of God actually come into their heart and change their heart. That as Israel go into the land, their hearts would be one that says, yes, God's personal presence is consistently and reliably with me always. He'll keep me secure because of, he's with me. He'll come quickly to protect me when I'm scared. When my heart is troubled, he'll comfort me. He'll support me as he leads me into places that I've never been before. I'm of value to him. This is important because the land that they're going into, and that's kind of what chapter 11 focuses on, is, is not the land that they've experienced before. It's a land that they have not experienced before. In, chapter, in verses 10 to 12, he says, it's not like the land of Egypt. It's not like that where you plant your seed and irrigate it. Egypt was, you know, its source of life was the Nile. You just looked down and there it was. Not so in Canaan. In Canaan, the source of life was rain. You had no choice in Canaan but to look up. Moses says, your land is a land of mountains and valleys that drink rain from heaven. It is a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year till its end. Israel will need to learn that life going well for them in the land does not mean a life that is going to be comfortable. Living in the land for Israel will be challenging, never knowing if the seeds that they've planted will get watered. Israel, Moses is reminding Israel, you not only live in a relationship that's based on promise, but you live in a land that is based on promise. And you'll always depend on the one who promises. For Israel, what really matters most, what will can be the most significant contributor for them finding a rewarding and successful for life going well in the land for them and their relationship with God will be the depth of their warmth and intimate relationship with their God. But how does, a, how does chapters 7 to 11 of Deuteronomy really mean anything for us? Because... We don't live in Canaan. Um, Jesus has come. And we've got our own problems. So let's ask the three questions that Ben's been helping us reflect on to understand how does this passage start to be of use for us in our life. By asking those three questions, what does it mean for the original audience? What does it mean for Israel? How does this point us to Jesus? And you know, what does this mean for us in light of Jesus? We spent the whole time basically looking at what does this mean for Israel. I'll remind us again that the most significant contributor to Israel's life going well in the land is their relationship with God, having a loving and ever-deepening relationship with Him. But how does this point to us? Um, how does this point to Jesus, sorry? Well, for God's people, that, that moment of the golden calf was the moment for them where divine forgiveness kind of entered their calendar. Yom Kippur was the, the Jewish holiday festival that entered their calendar at that moment for God's people. But for us, 
the supreme day, the day of God's forgiveness where his love is on display isn't at a golden calf but at a cross. It actually comes into his personal presence of his son. And John, in one of Jesus' disciples, in one of his letters, in 1 John 4, 9, 10, he reminds us of this, that this is how God shows his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Life might go well for us through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So how does this start to then shape how we live? Well, an old, very old, dead now, um, Presbyterian minister in Scotland, Thomas Chalmers, he lived in 1780 to 1847. In one of his famous sermons on 1 John, he drives home this point that nothing else can change the heart but by a power of a new love or a new affection. What Chalmers is saying is that by the power of a new love, that's actually what changes the heart. And for God's people in Deuteronomy and for us today, for in the words of Moses, for life to go well or for us to have life, it is through and in a loving relationship with God in Jesus. And while the cross, for sure, must reflect and remind us of us at our worst, of our sin and a healthy sense of guilt that should come with that. But as that grips our heart, notice what what John says is the most primary point of looking at the cross. This is where God shows his love. That's the experience we should have as we come to the cross. This is love. No doubt guilt is a powerful experience, a a powerful motivation. But what Deuteronomy is saying for God's people, what what John is saying for us today, is that the most powerful motivator for change in our life is God's love, is a loving experience of God. This is why Moses calls his people to remember. This is why John in his letter always says, behold, behold God's love. Because when you remember something, when you behold something, you're drawn into it. You're drawn closer, deeper into it, consumed by it. So remember and behold, let the love of God change your heart. Then let only God's love change your heart because, yeah, the study's right. The most significant contributor to life going well is our relationships and how warm and intimate and loving they are. But what the Bible is saying, what Deuteronomy is saying, what Jesus is saying, what John is saying is that, yeah, but in particularly Jesus and particularly with him, because only he can change the depths of our heart. And so, yeah, what really matters most for us, for life going well for us, for our relationship with God going well in the land that we live in, (laughs) will be the depth of our intimacy and warmth and loving relationship with Jesus. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for everything that you do for us. We thank you for the the life and death and resurrection of your son, and yet we're so familiar with it, yet our hearts are so not. Because like your people in the Old Testament, Father, we have hearts that don't think and feel in a way that reflect 
how you have treated us. We suffer from thinking too low of ourselves. We suffer from thinking too highly of ourselves. It's we seem to just remember and behold ourselves rather than you and what you've done for us and who you say we are and how you relate to us in your son. So we pray that you would, Father, give us the grace to be changed by your love, that we would be a people who, yeah, have rewarding lives, but because of our relationship with you. Father, we pray that Father, life would go well for us because of our depth of intimacy with you. We pray, Father, that we would let no one else, because you are the one and only true God, shape our heart above all other voices and pressures in life. Father, we ask this that we might be a people who, like your people of old, would reflect your goodness, your graciousness, your greatness and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.